0: Welcome to New Dreamland in Blue Morning. Before I started this interview series, I vastly underestimated the work it takes to produce a podcast that's worth publishing. For each hour of audio I record, it takes many more hours in post production. When I started, I didn't like editing. It's an uncomfortable experience to hear yourself speaking, but I've grown to appreciate the process. It's actually therapeutic to cut the BS out of a conversation. When I complete a podcast, I feel like I've cleared some negativity from my consciousness. It's an honor to present the final episode of New Dreamland Season 2, a conversation on painting, learning, and the mind with Matt Bennett Feedman. You can find Matt on Instagram, at spireizm, that's S-P-I-R-E-I-Z-M Shout out to Natasha Mikowski of Flower and Rock At Flower and Rock As for me, I deleted my social media accounts I'm cutting out the public from my life To focus on self-development Well, enough with the intro On to the show
1: It's easier to get in where you fit in If you know where you're going to fit in I want kind of like, I guess respect to the point where I've always wanted, and I don't know if this is legitimate or anything, but I've always wanted people who are not artists and are not into art to still respect my work. Like I want someone who knows nothing about art to just look at it and be like, I don't have to know what this is. This looks cool as hell and like, this is something. Like they'd be dismissive of the minimalist work and all that, and I don't, I think that's a test, like a success test. Like, oh, this this work speaks to everyone, it speaks universally the same way a, a great song in another language, you can still feel what they're feeling. Which is why although I'm writing in English, there's nothing that you can actually decipher. And obviously those are high hopes and kind of like unattainable goals, but, you know, shoot for the stars. Um, I had actually just sold my first, like, big series of three paintings, and that provided me with the money to go to Amsterdam. And I went to a bunch of museums there, and I came back really inspired by the expressionist works that I saw. Like a lot of Monet, and um, well, I saw a really cool Rembrandt show. Um, I think it was the Monet stuff. I I really just loved it. Oh, let me create a triptych of expressionist paintings so I can make my living room look like the water lilies. That's when I started doing the dots. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to I wanted to make something beautiful. Yesterday, I, I watched this interview of David Letterman talking with Zach Galifianakis, I don't know if I pronounced that right, but, and they're talking about his, like, Two Ferns show, which I guess was one of the first Netflix originals, and he was talking about how VH1 gave him a show, and he, um, it was too formal for him, so what, uh, you know, are you familiar with Zach Yeah, yeah, I've worked with your friend a few times. So yeah, at first, VH1 gave him a show that totally flopped. He was being super formal, and they're like, like you need to get rude and like be like your comedian self. And I feel like that's how he is. Like between two ferns, it's like the awkwardness really breathes, and the awkwardness like makes it hilarious, and it really. I think just highlights his skill as an actor like finding your own style you know like as a painter I'm I'm not like detail oriented I'm not like with a tiny brush like choosing my color palettes I'm like a lot more explosive and just like I get as much paint off the canvas that I get on the canvas and you know there's no right way to like make an interview there's no right way to paint find
0: a way for you that well what i did in the conversation in the sense i narrated it so with tim mccool his paintings were about william gibson sound science fiction shows called winter that's of these books that are about like a future where there's Know, billionaires that control the world—they're building AI, supercomputers, and almost all the people are kind of enslaved by the system. Okay, and there's like a there's a resistance that goes with it. Yeah, it's it's very relevant. Okay, and I guess in my head I'm imagining what like. Uh, I think of as like the art world and I wouldn't expect an interview with a painter to really go deep into the subject because it's kind of gauche or taboo to like interpret an artist's work to their face. Yes,
1: but also um, I think now painters have a different role where they're starting to get more comfortable with talking about subjects. I don't know. Are you familiar with Mark Bradford? He gives the most amazing talks that are uh, usually like, some of them are an hour, some are an hour and a half. Um, And the way he just describes his work in like a social context and like how, He's in touch with his materials and why he uses the materials he does. Um, I definitely um, was very inspired listening to the talks of Mark Bradford, even to the point that I I heard the format that he was talking about his art, and I realized like, huh, you know, those are the reasons why people care about Mark Bradford's art, you know. And then why would they care about mine? So I kind of like used this format to write an artist statement about like my materials and like how mine exists socially and like um because you know that all the all the great artists say that it's great to copy. So I want to copy Mark Bradford. He's one of my favorites. So. And so what he does is he takes a lot of found paper that he steals off billboards in LA and advertisements and he mixes it with his own colored paper. And he like paper maches them over and over again, hundreds of times. He uses drills, sanders, all, all of the stuff from Home Depot, which is like what I use for materials. And he just goes aches it on the canvas until it's like these incredible, incredible abstract paintings done with paper that like they're just mind blowing. Like when you don't know what they're about, they're mind blowing. And then when you find out who Mark Grassburg is and what he's about,
0: it's even more mind blowing. So you think that knowing what they're about or demystifying them doesn't detract from their appeal, but actually increases your interest in the in work. Yeah, that, I definitely think that. See, that's kind of a scientific approach.
1: Yeah, and also I think the image of how he looks and how he behaves in the interviews and like kind of his tone of voice, because you know he's really like sarcastic and well-spoken, but hilarious. So and he's not pretentious either. So I think that's a nice change of pace because I think a lot of people are very intimidated because they're like, oh, I don't understand conceptual art. Oh, and they think that it's this like, super like, over-intellectual thing where it's, it's really, you know, the same as a regular person trying to tell a story same as music, same as a novel. A lot of attention from these pieces that feature a lot of text, where to a point business-wise, maybe I should just like do only the text and be the guy that you know you're gonna get that from. And you know, like a lot of these Artists like Rothko or like Clifford Still or something, yeah, they did a lot of different experimental paintings, but they want you to be, they want to tie you to something. Just like, so I, I found out um, Jerry Garcia, you know, the guitar, you know, the guy who made great right for that, of course, guitar, so he, um, he would make these awesome ties with repeating texts. Actually, reminiscent of how the, the neckties, paint it. yeah, neckties, same way that the the paintings that I do look, and that's when I realized that like, you know, someone like Jerry Garcia is is just a genius. He could make art of all types, but people want to tie him to that guitar, and they want to tie him to that image of the Grateful Dead, which is, you know, I think something that people who aren't necessarily, you know, making art and they're not in that world, they want to be able to understand what you're doing. So they'd rather have me make these texts over and over and over again rather than try to understand how this piece, you know, which is totally abstract, is going to link to that. They, you know, sometimes I even feel pressure on myself like when I was making all the dot paintings, like, oh, I like better become the dot guy, and like, I better have that as a brand. And I think that's where like, through being a painter is cool because you get to have like 10 brands at once and you put them as series. It is important not to be too all over the place, for me at least. I think a lot of artists in my generation lack the historical knowledge they're kind of shooting in the dark and they're like oh like they're so all over the place and I'm like like do you know who so and so is like do you know like for me I was really inspired by Sai Twombly but I think without knowing who Sai Twombly is I think I might actually be at more risk of copying him I think the more you know who people are the more you can be original because you know what's already been done and that way you're you're aiming. You're not stepping on people's toes. You're you're hopping into the the conversation with them with a real like bow and arrow approach, you know, and you can really you can hit that bullseye by knowing who you are conversating with and who whose influences and who who isn't relevant. The good thing about being a painter is paint goes over paint and it does build up a nice texture and uh, His works were famously sometimes like, you know, 10 pounds heavier than the canvas because there was so much damn oil paint on it. He'd have works that would be in it for three years and some of the like marks on it existed from the first layer. Be careful what you wish for because when you get it and you're pretending to be insane, you might go totally insane. Um, Similar to not that he's insane, but Tupac Shakur was, he was an actor, he was a, you know, amazing lyricist and intellectual, and he was a very, very talented kid that turned, the blossomed into having an amazing career. He made this career off this whole, uh, thug life image, which wasn't really how he came up, um and look at how that ended. Um, you know, it's it really comes down to, like, be careful what you wish for. I've even, on a small scale, wished for things that have come true, and then been like, you know, what the hell was I thinking when I wished for that? So I think that is a, a cliche statement, but it's also an important statement for for people they consider on all scales. You might really wish to get a job or even quit a job. And you gotta think about you know, the consequences of what these wishes are gonna bring. There's a cliche,
0: running back towards a touchdown. He thanks God. You know, baseball player hits a home run, he thanks God. And it's like, if, you, if the baseball player hits the home run, that means the pitcher gave out the home run. So like, is God favoring the hitter over the pitcher? And to achieve success in some competitive endeavor and then to thank God for it or to first have prayed to God or have looked to, to wish to some higher power to give myself or say my nation you know success you know God is blessing us to kill our enemies. I believe there is an incredible power that is from the spiritual realm but to grab it in competitive endeavors and to think that God is favoring me because I'm so pious. What I get out of spirituality that it's less about thinking of God as like a superhero that if you do your rituals right and if you have the right attitude towards some supreme being that you will get a return on your investment. It's less about that and more about eliminating the obstacles, eliminating the kinds of thinking and the kind of action that prevents you from realizing your potential and seeing the opportunities that do exist yeah I think
1: that it weirdly like spirituality can be a lot more physical rather than mental than we give it credit for so when you do a good deed it's not about expecting a return it's about kind of the immediate return that you know less animosity and less hate against other people and less anger in your own self it physically you know pumps your brain with different um. what do we call it um, like euphoria and it just pumps it with good endorphins so you don't have to hope for a return from karma you feel the immediate return of you know the kind quick, kind words you get from someone or like, you know, for example, yesterday I was in a Quincy Red Line train station. This guy's on a wheelchair, he said, oh, where's the hell, the elevator, I can't get up the stairs. And I was like, I mean, get up. You know, he was able to stand on the escalator. I actually carried his wheelchair up the stairs. I put him at the top. You know, he got back in the wheelchair, and he was like, "Oh man, thank you so much! Like, you're my hero for today, da da da." It's like, I'm not expect anything good to happen from that. That was good. That already happened, so it's not like today I'm gonna play a scratch ticket and be like, "Ooh, like now I have more likelihood of winning because of that." Like, I think it's it's more like the physical things of like, you know when you scream the middle finger and honk your horn at someone via road rage you don't get bad karma from that you feel bad immediately from all the anger that um, overtakes you so that's the way I've been thinking of things is more literally rather than hoping a higher power will take control of it it's like you're the higher power and you know what I don't, there's all these things about God within you and I think that is a more reasonable approach to you know trying to do your part and you know if you don't feel like helping people then that's on you um,
0: well, to bring this back to artwork, if you live a life that is a practice of right actions, then that is infused into your subconscious, not con- unconscious mind. And then even without you knowing, it, that will be projected into work I believe this for fine artists, but also really for, for any kind of work, um, and if you are living a really rough, kind of out of line life, then that also will come out in your work. I mean the way to, to work as an artist is to be I believe to be in tune with the source of truth. And and so if whatever the truth is, that is what you will reveal.
1: Yeah, so like think to bring it to art, like a lot of these very abstract, like, dotted pieces had a lot to do with, like, diversity in a community and actually equality because, like, when you have the reds and the yellows, you know, the reds could represent a rarer breed, like, artists. The yellow could represent, like, 9 to fivers uh, The pink could represent trust fund babies. The silver could be like, you know, homeless people, like it's so in the background. And one is unable to function without the other. If the entire canvas was red, you wouldn't see yellow. You wouldn't see silver. I think a lot of these are actually inspired by the HBO series The Wire because that really highlights, you know, a random move that a homeless guy makes is indirectly going to affect the mayor or the political system via what happens with money and crime and just other actions that are going to be happening through the whole streamline of any given city. And I think you know, Baltimore was a great example because it's so corrupt. I think, you know, them choosing Baltimore really is what made that such an amazing, like, work of art that is, you know, what we talked about and talked about for so long. Versus like, oh, those are a bunch of pretty dots. They look like Damien Hirst. Which I hate that comment. <laughs> and you could assign any color to any thought or subject, but they're really about, like, diversity and, and everything Coming together and really, whether you love it or hate one specific thing, you know, the left wing doesn't exist without the right wing. Healthy doesn't really compare unless you compare it to McDonald's or some poisonous crap. And of course, I painted them first and then I came up with a subject. That's my process of working. I don't have a concept in mind when I work and then try to illustrate that. I make the work out of my subconscious then I try to read into the work and oh what was I thinking about what was that what did that, you know this was a very literal one for me, very literal but the nice thing is it's open to like I think this could have a cause a great conversation about race. For me it's about a relationship because that's what I was having but you could talk about anything opposite with this. It's almost like a yin yang. And I think that's like, that's one of the amazing things about abstract art is unlike a, a book or a TV show that has a lot of narrative involved in it, you know, anyone is able to make their own narrative to this, which people really enjoy that freedom. And so actually, the process behind this was using black paint that was oil-based, white paint that was water-based. So chemically, they can't mix. There's no gray in the entire piece. They interact on the canvas without ever being able to mix because they're two different substances. So they're like two different people that were never able to really merge together as one but they are you know trying as hard as possible to really interact and make that connection but no matter how hard they try they're just not cut from the same cloth it just does not happen well you say that but i see some gray. it almost looks like smoke Uh, It's like the one night that it didn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Is that here too? A little bit of smoke in there, yeah. So conceptually, what that would say to you is, no matter how hard you're trying to make them not mix, everything inevitably does a little bit. (laughs) The word education was funny with that because I had a, you know, very tough time in school so I actually put myself in that very vulnerable space by getting an education which I think made it twice as strong for me. I would, you know, I heavily condone all artists, not all but, you know, most artists I think can gain a lot by going to art college. If not from the professors, just be surrounded by like-minded peers. So they're not you know, shooting in the dark as we were talking about earlier. They, they have a sense of aim and a, a direction and some inspiration that they can then, you know, if they want to be alone the rest of their life, they can thrive off that. But I think it's, it's nice to know where you stand. Um, I remember when I was in high school, They would put us, all the skateboarders, put us in this thing called curriculum support, which is like, you know, they'd help us with our homework. They would literally do our homework for us when we couldn't do it. It was just like, just get you guys through. And I think you can actually really put someone at a big risk by giving them the easy way out because they're gonna be looking for the easy way out their entire life. So my my father, who's actually a neuropsychologist, he does a lot of, so essentially if someone is going to be collecting disability based on a mental problem, he's the one that can diagnose it, what that is. And what he's explained to me is how valuable his diagnosis is because he can't just say, oh, this guy's having a tough time, let's give him disability, that is the biggest disadvantage you can give to someone is giving them disability because they'll never be able to provide for themselves and they will actually fall into being whatever they're claiming even if it's not true because of their you know their self doubt and their inability to
0: you know conquer adversity and just Really then because of the power structure. Like he's the expert. If the expert tells you that you have this diagnosis, then who are you to disagree with it? Exactly, and I think that's why it's just
1: so important to have the right kind of experts. You know, he's told me about all these doctors over prescribing and taking you know, the doctors are taking the easy way out, it's giving their patients the easy way out, and it's a vicious cycle of trying to solve problems the quick way, it's like, oh, my back hurts, I'm just gonna take an Advil, like, no, you gotta get a back roller, you gotta soothe that pain out, and yeah, it might hurt, it might be difficult, but, um, I think, you know, what I've gathered from that, in terms of my career, is like, don't, you know, start screen printing my art onto some t-shirts because I can make $15 off of it like, like no take the full route like take the, the go from scratch take the, the thorough approach and I think that's where I differ with a lot of people in my generation because whenever I come out with a painting they're like oh this would look so sick on a shirt or like oh this would look so sick on an album okay what does it look like as a giant painting which is what it is let's talk about that and by the way I also do make t-shirts so if you want those like that's a whole different art project I'd like to see our generation you know start to value the long route like what things are not not the fast food route
0: well that can only come with time I mean the long route the cost is time it hasn't been proven to a young person, that things come with time. I mean, that's inherent to
1: being young. Exactly. That's why it can be useful to look back into history and see what do you want to be? Someone with longevity? whenever I think of longevity, I automatically think of uh, Guru, the MC from Gangstar, because his music was never club bangers, it wasn't popular because. Guru was very conscious, and he was talking about things that are timeless and things that are really truth. You know, it's the album "Moment of Truth." And at the time, people may have rather been listening to DMX than Guru. You know, nothing against DMX as a great artist, but who remains relevant? I don't want to say forever, because I don't believe in forever, but, you know, who remains relevant throughout the decades? Um, you know, why are we still talking about someone like Rothko? You know, why is uh, Rothko highly regarded by artists as being great in comparison to Warhol, which, you know, a lot of fine artists that I know aren't even slightly interested in Warhol. You know, I, I'm interested in everyone in their own, in their own right, but... They're always going to be the less popular people that are going to have that longevity, which is why I've never been interested in making like gimmicky or sales-driven art.
0: What's the dimensions of this, uh, of this piece? Four by six feet. So for a piece of this size, what's the range of times between when you start working on it to when you say it's finished. Last week I was working outdoors
1: on these four by five foot canvases and I was finishing a piece a day. I was finishing, you know, very systematically. I was working with acrylic paint which dries a lot faster and they were kind of just like, almost just like bowling, just knocking pins down. But it really varies because depending on the methods, uh, this piece in front of us has kind of been more experimental and it's been more of a battle. I've painted on this piece probably 30 times in terms of, I wrote all over the entire piece. I had to come up with a narrative for all the writing, which ended up being kind of like a journal or a diary entry to what was happening at that point. And then I, did this other technique, which is where I cover the letters in brush strokes that mimic the letters, but actually make it much less legible. So in that sense, you might be able to pick some of the words up, but it really like obstructs the viewer and makes the, the shapes much more important as opposed to the, the literal narrative. So after doing that, I had this other method, what I call buffing, which is where I cover up everything. And as you can see, black on black texture, there's still words underneath, all of them. You can pick out, like there's an A right there, H-A-E-H-E, couldn't tell you exactly what it says. I do the buffing to the point where almost the whole piece is buffed, and there's almost this like totem pole or like, potential like cave, cave looking um, piece that is still obviously is built up of letters. You know, I think most people would still be able to tell that. And now I'm going back in and abstracting it more. And then I'm going to come in with the buff again and, you know, buff some of those teal marks out more. And so for a piece like this, I hope that I will have enough restraint that it can actually get finished, as opposed to just some of the pieces where I don't have the restraint, I end up totally rebooting. Which, you know, doesn't mean I throw the canvas away, but you will potentially not see this as a a black artwork, it could be a green artwork if I paint over it. Uh, Like for example, this one had quite a bit of failures underneath it. You know, it's a blue work of art now, but I couldn't tell you how many ideas or potential pieces were underneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm the type where, you know, if I don't solve it, it doesn't bother me. Uh, This piece right here, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of artists were involved in the making of this uh, paint, that's on this because I took it from a public space that has had graffiti on it since the 80s or potentially even before that so and actually the older sides of it are the ones that are facing you so the ones you know on the back of the chips were probably from 2017 when I made the piece but the ones that are right here like this pink or this yellow, it's probably from the 90s. And I don't know the artist that did it. Inevitably, there are dead artists on this piece. Dead artists? Yeah, a lot of graffiti artists die. It's like a very common link between the two things. Because these are guys who are all about taking as much risk as they can, saying fuck society and Graffiti is usually the least of the crimes that some of these guys do. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not always true. A lot of graffiti artists are art students who study typography that don't commit any crimes. So, you know, it's really, it's really a range. It's a range. But this spot is really close to Lynn, so mm-hmm. a lot of wow. Lynn. a lot of the Lynn guys do not fall into that art student mm-hmm. category.